Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and I'd like to welcome you to the December 16th edition of the Unity in Christ program. We are approaching the end of the year, ready to close out 2017. I can't believe the year is almost over. The streets are filled with Christmas decorations and people singing Christmas carols, and we can see many thrilled and smiling faces. But one thing that is saddening is that Christmas has become a time of decoration and carols. The thrill and excitement people have shown are more because of the practices and traditions of the holiday and not the remembrance of the birth of Jesus Christ who came and redeemed us. It is understandable for those who don't know Jesus to be excited for these reasons. But those who know Christ should be more excited about the birth of Jesus Christ than the holiday itself. Jesus came to redeem sinners and came to pay the price of sin with his own death. If we remember the reason of his coming to this earth, clearly then Christmas, which commemorates his birth, should be both joyful and solemn. Today, I want to share this story with you. It is about the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, which record the story of Jesus' birth. If the book of Matthew is written from Joseph's perspective, then the book of Luke is written from Mary's perspective. The author starts the book of Luke with the introduction that is written carefully and in detail, starting from the beginning. While reading the record of Jesus' birth from the book of Luke, there was a part I did not quite understand. It was about the angels that appeared to the shepherds in chapter 2. The shepherds were tending to the sheep at night, and suddenly, with great fear, the angels appeared to them with these words. But the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. This scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. In this passage, the angels told the shepherds that the Savior was born in the town of David, and he is the Messiah and Christ. The angel also told him that this will be a sign for you, the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in the manger. I couldn't figure this part out. A baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger, is a sign? What sign could it be? Why does the Bible tell us about the baby wrapped in clothes in verse 7 and again in verse 12? Is it to emphasize it? Clothes are just clothes. Isn't it obvious that a newborn baby would be wrapped in clothes? So why did the Bible state this twice? In order to emphasize it? I became curious 
If the baby lying in a manger is more important than the clothes it is wrapped in, then the Bible should have written, You will see a baby lying in a manger, and this will be the sign for you. So I began to research what clothes meant. One biblical scholar said clothes were from worn-out, raggedy clothes of a priest. However, there is no evidence to prove this theory. So I looked up the Greek word for the word clothes, but unfortunately, the Hebrew word for clothes, which is spal kanoa, is used only twice in the Bible. It was difficult to figure out how it was used in other meanings. But there was something odd. This word, spalkanoa, does not mean clothes. Spalkanoa is not a noun, but a verb meaning to wrap. Therefore, what this verse emphasizes is not the clothes, but the baby's situation of being wrapped. The sign was that the baby was wrapped and it was lying in a manger. Hallelujah. Lord, we bow before you and worship you, our Savior. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is The Meaning of Christmas. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. Now, at a Christmas service, you can uh, go to a text for reflection that describes the Christmas event. So, You can go to a text that has shepherds, angels, wise men, the manger. This is actually a text that's obviously not describing the events of Christmas. It's telling us what they mean. It doesn't tell us what happened. It tells us what happened means. 
And this is the beginning of 1 John. John wrote the gospel of John, plus these three letters. Uh, The prologue, or the very first four verses of John that we just read, are very like the very first few verses of the gospel of John, which you've actually got also printed a couple pages back uh, that was read in Flemish. And uh, what I'd like to show you is there's four things that this text tells us that Christmas means. It's very easy at Christmas time not to actually think about what it means. All you have to do is sort of let the nostalgia hit. You feel warm, you've got memories, uh, you've got some time off, many, many good things happen and just feel good at Christmas. I'd like to help you think about what Christmas actually means and what the, when the Bible talks about the birth of Christ, the Son of God, Lord of heaven, becoming coming into this world, born as a human being in the manger. What does that mean? Four things. First, it actually means that salvation is by grace. Do you notice how John talks about Jesus here? In, in chapter 1 of John, he's called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As a matter of fact, uh, over there, that's the Greek NRK Hologos. In the beginning was the Word. And Jesus was called the Word. And here he's called the Word of Life. But look more carefully. It says, This Word of Life was with the Father from the beginning. Verse 2 The life appeared, we have seen and testified to it, and we proclaimed to you the eternal life with, who was with the Father. Now, we're not being told here that Jesus Christ has life or gives life, and this is not just physical life, this is eternal life, salvation. It doesn't just say he has it or he gives it. It says he is it. Here's one of the first things we always can say makes Christianity different than other religions. In every other religion, the founder is a prophet or a sage, and the founder says, here's the way for you to find eternal life. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And you will connect to the infinite, or you will become one with God, or you'll be saved, whatever. This is the way to eternal life. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because Christianity does not say Jesus is a great prophet pointing the way to God and how we can save ourselves. Jesus Christ, according to Christmas, Is God come to save us, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves? To know him is eternal life. It's not like he comes and you follow him and you do the things that you should do and you live a good life and then, you know, God blesses you and God saves you. No, no, he is the life. Over the years, I've had people say to me something like this. They say, well, you know, I don't know what I believe about Jesus or I don't know if I believe the incarnation or all these things. Because doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine and dogma doesn't matter. What matters is you live a good life. That's what matters. And I always say, when you say doctrine doesn't matter, what matters is that you live a good life, that's a doctrine. And you know what the doctrine says? It says, I actually am not so bad that I need a savior. I'm actually not so messed up that I can't pull it together and live a good enough life. So when you say doctrine doesn't matter, what matters is that you live a good life. That is the doctrine, and historically it's called the doctrine of salvation by your works rather than by grace. Uh, And I'll tell you this, everybody, if you 
do say doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is that you live a good life, and I'm trying to live a good life. Yeah, you're trying to live a good life. It will be a life characterized by fear and insecurity because you'll never feel like you're being quite good enough. Or it'll be marked by pride and disdain for other people if you feel like you actually have been good enough. Or it'll be marked by devastation and self-loathing if you feel you haven't been good enough. So you're going to be insecure and anxious, or you're going to be proud, or you're going to be devastated, or you're going to go through phases over and over again. And if Jesus Christ didn't actually come, if the story of Christmas is just a wonderful legend, God, gift, baby. But you see, what we're being told here is when John says, we saw him with our hand, uh, with our eyes, we heard him with our ears, we touched him with our hands. Why is he being so emphatic? Bob Yarborough, who's a New Testament scholar of ancient history, etc., says, look at these terms. When it, and he says this. He says about these verses, the variety of verbs correspond to the variety of witness attestation in ancient jurisprudence. And so when John writes, we have seen it and testify to it, and then he speaks of hearing, seeing, and touching, he is not making conversation, but he's virtually swearing a deposition. What John is trying to say is, it's not just a nice story about Jesus. It really happened. We really saw him. He really lived. He really died. He really rose from the dead. It's really God come. He's not just a wonderful teacher. He's God himself. If Christmas is just a nice legend, you're on your own. But if Christmas is true, and John says it is absolutely true, eyewitness account, swearing and deposition, then you can be saved by grace. You can know that just by believing in him, you're received, you're accepted. Okay? So first of all, Christmas means salvation by grace. Secondly, Christmas means you can have fellowship with God. Why is he talking about the doctrine of the incarnation? We proclaim this to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and that means to have fellowship with God, the Father and the Son, because he has fellowship with the Father and the Son. In other words, the doctrine of Christmas, the incarnation, is about fellowship. We're being told here it is not enough just to believe in God or even just to obey him. Christmas means God has gone to infinite lengths to come near you, to have a personal relationship with him so that you can know him personally. God is not content to simply be a concept to be believed or even uh, something to warm your heart. He's not even uh, content to be a powerful force that you bow to in some way because he became human. And one of the reasons is so we can have fellowship with him, intimacy. Look at the sun. Don't. Because if you try to look at the sun to see what it looks like, you won't be able to see it, will you? Why? At best, it will just be a blur. It, its glory will be too great for your eyes. It will overwhelm you, and you really won't see it. You'll see a blur at best. At worst, it will burn out your retina. And therefore, if you really want to see the glory of the sun, you need a filter. You need something between you and the sun that enables you to actually see the flames bursting on the surface, the sunspots, eruptions. If you want to see the glory of the sun, you can't just look at it. You need to look at it through something. You need to look at it through a filter or you really can't see the glory of God. Whoops. It's not just the sun we're talking about. When we pray, pardon me, when we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's a line, I think it's in the second verse, that goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
Isn't that interesting? Charles Wesley, who wrote this, the uh, hymn, very good theology, he didn't say, because God is veiled in, fe- in flesh, we can't see the Godhead. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead hidden? No. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Because God has become a human being, we can see his glory in a way that otherwise would just overwhelm us, literally, because remember, Moses tried to look at the glory of God, and God says, it'll kill you. It'll burn out the retina of your soul. It'll destroy you. And yet John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that mean? When you see the story of Jesus, read the Gospels, and you're seeing God in human form. It's like a filter. You can see him, see his love, see his humility, see his brilliance, see his wisdom, see his compassion. All the attributes of God that you know about from the Old Testament, which are kind of overwhelming, daunting, and maybe even intimidating, overwhelming, and destructive. Well, God says, I can't show you directly, but in Jesus Christ, we can come near. We can come near intellectually. Because we can understand, we can grasp him. He becomes graspable, palpable. You read about a human being, God in human form. He becomes someone we can relate to. You know that. So many people who really have never read the New Testament believe in God, but when they get the New Testament, they really believe Jesus is the Son of God. And they start to read about him. Suddenly God becomes really human. He is human. He becomes a person. Now he's a real person. But the application, the practical point is this. God went to infinite lengths to get near you, to get close to you, so that you could know him personally. God went to infinite lengths. He lost his glory. He lost his life. Now, you must be willing to go to great lengths to get close to him. It's not enough just to believe in him. Many of you know there's things going on in your life that he's displeased with. That's why you're really not that close to him. Many of you just aren't taking the time to learn how to pray. God's Christmas means God wants to be near you. He wants to be close to you. This is uh, Daniel Steele, who was a British Christian minister in the 18th century. A letter he wrote to a friend about his prayer life. Listen to this. Almost every week, and sometimes almost every day, I feel a pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times, he has unlocked every apartment of my being and flooded them all with the light of his presence. The inner spot has been touched, and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. That's a man talking about his prayer life. Is that how you could talk about your prayer life? Probably not. But you know, it's because if you want to get close to him, you have to put in the time, you have to change your life, you have to put him in the center of your life. The incarnation, Christmas, means that God is not content to be a concept or just someone you know afar off. He went to infinite lengths to get close to you. Now you do what it takes to get close to him. What will it take in your life? Christmas is a challenge there. So first of all, Christmas means salvation by grace. Secondly, Christmas means you can have fellowship with him. Thirdly, Christmas means love really matters. The secular world says this world is all there is. You are nothing but physical matter. There's no soul. There's no spirit. It's just you, just the physical. And therefore, everything about you is here only simply because of the process of natural selection. Francis Crick, Nobel-winning scientist, some years ago wrote a book called The, uh, The Astonishing Universe. And in it, he said something that was controversial. 
But from the standpoint of a secular view of things, irrefutable, he said, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are all, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Now, what he's saying, again, what he's saying is this. If you have no soul, you only have a body, then your thoughts and your feelings, like you say, love matters, people matter, human beings matter. Those are thoughts, those are feelings, but actually, he says, they're chemical responses. They're chemical things happening in your brain. And so those chemical things make you say, oh, love matters. But the fact is, they're just a chemical response. Well, why are you having those chemical responses? He says, well, science will tell you because your ancestors had those particular chemical responses in their brain, which led to behavior that enabled them to survive. And all the people who didn't have those particular chemical responses in their brain, who didn't think those thoughts, because they didn't think those thoughts, they did not survive. And that's the reason why today everybody says, love matters, people matter, human beings have dignity, but they're just chemical responses in the brain. Science will tell you that human beings, individuals don't matter. The species sort of matters, but only if the strong, only if the weak ones die off, then the species survives. You say, love makes a difference. Love matters. Taking care of people matters. And if there is no other thing but your body, if there is only this world, if this life is all there is, Francis Crick is right. And love is nothing but a chemical response in the brain that enables you to survive. But there's a different way of looking at it. And by the way, I know plenty of people in New York City who believe that. That's what they say. Everything has a scientific explanation. Everything has a natural cause. Maybe there's a God, but we don't know. We must never take that into account. Secular point of view. And yet nobody lives as if love doesn't matter. Nobody lives as if these thoughts and these feelings are really just chemical responses, though they would be on that point of view. And yet nobody lives that way. Christmas tells you that what your heart intuitively knows is true. Christmas can make you whole, oh New Yorker. If your brain tells you one thing and your heart tells you another thing, so your brain says this is it, but you're not living that way, Christmas can make you whole. Because Christmas proves that love is not something that just happened inside a human brain as a chemical response, but love pre-existed the world, created the world, and is redeeming the world. Where does it get that? Well, the beginning of chapter 1 of John... 1 John and the beginning of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John and chapter 5 and chapter 17. John gives us more about the Trinity than any other writer in the Bible. And you notice what it says here is from the beginning. That doesn't say what that's saying. When the beginning of time happened, there was already the Word and the Father. The Son was with the Father. See that? It says, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father from the beginning. And of course, over in chapter 1 of John, it says, in the beginning, the Word of Christ already was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Every other religion says God is a force, or God is a unipersonal being who created. And of course, you can't have love till you create other persons. In other words, you have to have more than one person to have love. So other religions say either God's an impersonal force, or God is a unipersonal being that created, and then love came in. But only Christianity says that God is a communal, glorious love in himself. There's one God, but in that one God, there have always been three persons. And those three persons have been knowing and loving each other and adoring each other from all eternity, which means love was before. 
the world. And the world came from a God who was already love. Love created the world. The world came out of love. And, pardon me, the love is redeeming the world too. Love is not just a response up in your brain. It was before the world, it created the world, and now it's redeeming the world. Because why did God come to earth? Why did he go to all this incredible trouble to become something that could be seen and heard and tasted and touched? I'll tell you. When I was 11 years old, Yuri Gagarin, the first Russian cosmonaut, orbited the earth. That was 1961. You can do the math. It was one of the first things I remember of reading in the paper and everybody being really excited about it. And Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia at the time, actually said after that, he said at one point, we in the Russia, our official religion is atheism, or we're officially atheists. And we have even more evidence for atheism now because we sent a man into heavens and there was no God there. So we have more evidence than ever. Now, C.S. Lewis was still alive at that time and he heard what Nikita Khrushchev said. And so he wrote a little essay called The Seeing Eye. And he said, think about it, everybody. If there was a God, you wouldn't relate to God the way a person who lives on the first floor relates to a person who lives on the second floor. You see, Nikita Khrushchev was actually saying... He was thinking of God as someone who lives on the second floor. And we were down here on earth and we sent a man to the second floor and there was nobody home. So clearly there's nobody up there. And so Lewis says, well, think about it. If there was a God, you wouldn't relate to him the way a person on the second floor relates to the person on the third floor. You would relate to him the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. See, Shakespeare created Hamlet. And the only way Hamlet can know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. Hamlet's not going to find anything out about Shakespeare by going up into the rafters of the stage, you know, looking, you know, upstairs. Only if Shakespeare, how do you say it? Only if the creator, by revelation, reveals something to the creature. You'll only know something about your creator if he reveals, if he writes something into the world, into the play. And then Lewis said, ah, but God did something better than just write some information in. Dorothy L. Sayers was a woman who lived in some years ago, and she was the first, one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford, and she was a writer of mystery detective stories. And her most famous character was Lord Peter Whimsey, who was an aristocrat, solved mysteries. In the middle of all these novels and short stories about Lord Peter Whimsey, who was a single man for most of, you know, for a big period of time, suddenly a woman appears in the novels. Her name is Harriet Vane. She's not very particularly good-looking, She's one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford. She's a writer of detective fiction. And she and Peter meet and they solve a couple of, of mysteries and then they fall in love and live happily ever after. And many people have said that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world she created and looked at the man that she created and fell in love with him and wrote herself into the story because she saw he was lonely and he needed someone to save him. And so she wrote herself into the story and they lived happily ever after. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that moving? Of course it's moving. And yet God has actually done that. The doctrine of Christmas, the teaching of Christmas, is that the love who created the world and who created us and who knows that we've gone astray and we've gone away from him and we're in a mess, he looks, God has looked into the world that he created and he's looked at us, the main character in the world, human race, and he's loved us. And he wrote himself into the play he wrote himself into our lives. That's why he was born in a manger. And he came to save us, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died in our place. 
There's a barrier between us and God, and as everybody knows, when you wrong someone, there's a barrier in that relationship. God has to, until it's dealt with, God had to deal with it, and that's how he came. Love is not just a chemical reaction or a chemical response. We know it's not. We talk about love, and when we talk about love, we talk about forever. I'll love you forever, which is silly. Why don't we just say, I'll love you till I die or you die? But we don't feel that way. We feel like our love is going to... Why do we feel that way? Because love is not a thing originally from time and space. It's come into the world. It's come from somewhere else. Christmas proves that. Lastly, Christmas means salvation by grace, fellowship with God is possible. Love matters, really does. And lastly, it means joy. Notice the last word, the last passive phrase. I'm writing you all this about the incarnation. I want you to believe this to make our joy complete. Kathy and I only have ever owned one home in our whole lives. We, you know, we rent here, but we owned a home when we lived in Philadelphia, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, in the Roslyn Abington area. And we lived on the side of a hill or kind of a small mountain. So it was a, it was a pretty steep incline. And uh, it was a good house, and we had an upstairs, downstairs, and a basement. But the one thing that really puzzled us was how wet and damp the basement always was. Whenever it rained, it would actually fill up with water. It was a real problem. But even when it was dry, in fact, even when there was a drought on, and everybody was parched, and it was hot, and, uh, and the grass had, had turned brown because there had been no rain, even when it was incredibly dry and hot in the weather, it was always damp down there always wet and damp and mildewy. Couldn't figure it out. And then finally, one of our neighbors who'd lived there all his life said, oh, the real estate people don't tell you about this. No offense, real estate people, but there are people like that in your field. The real estate people don't tell you about that. There's a subterranean river that comes, it's underground and it runs down the side of the mountain and it goes right under the house. Our water table is like this, is just underneath your, uh, this, the basement. And of course, when there's any kind of rain, the water just rises up and comes into your building. But even when there's no rain, even when it's dry upstairs, you might say up in, on the earth, underneath it's always, always, always moist and cold and wet because there's a river down there. If you believed everything I've told you about Christmas, if you believed it with all your heart, if you really knew it, it would be a subterranean river of joy that was always there keeping you cool when the circumstances of your life were hot and parched. If you think of it like this, until Christmas, here was the ideal and here was the real. Here's the ideal, heaven, bliss, happiness, eternity, immortality, and down here's the real, suffering, death, limitation, brokenness. And between the ideal and the real was this concrete slab, reality. At Christmas, in the incarnation, God punched a hole, punched a hole in that concrete slab between the ideal and the real, and the ideal became real. And the ideal came down into our lives and into this world, and it's going to change everything eventually. That can be a subterranean river of joy in your life that keeps you cool, keeps you going, even when everything else is pretty bad in your life. Christmas means all these things. Christmas means so much. Think about it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you that uh, we don't just have to feel good at Christmas in a general way and it wears off. We can think about what Christmas really means and that can be an anchor to our souls and it can be a subterranean river of joy. 
and can be great, a great thing for us. We ask that Christmas you might help us to think out all that it means so that we can have the joy and have the fellowship and have the grace and have the love that Christmas points to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999, and email address is at gmail.com. Following this program is the questions from the Bible program series. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program, Questions from the Bible. Do any of you write letters by hand nowadays? With fast and convenient methods like email and text messaging apps, it is not very often that we sit down to write a letter and take it to the post office like we did before. I can't remember when the last time I wrote a letter, and now the word letter has become quite an unfamiliar concept in my life. About a year ago, I received a letter that was mixed in with some bills and a bunch of advertisements. I opened the envelope that was addressed to me with anticipation and curiosity about who might have sent it. When I opened it, it was an individual from a religious cult trying to evangelize through the letter. With Bible passages skillfully pieced together, he was promoting lies and inviting me to a gathering. I read this and felt very uncomfortable. It would have been much better if I had received a letter that greeted and encouraged me with the truth of the word. However, if I think back, you and I have already received such a letter. These are the letters from the New Testament of the Bible. In the New Testament, all the books except for the four Gospels and Revelation are letters, also known as epistles. Looking at these books in detail, it is a fact that they were written in the form of a letter. And of all the epistles in the Bible, more than half were written by the Apostle Paul. For today's questions from the Bible, we will look at a verse from one of Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? A letter is written by a sender with a purpose to the receiver. So when reading an epistle, it is better understood when we think what the purpose of the sender was when writing the letter. As we can see in the title of the book, 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul writing to the people at the church in Corinth. During his second missionary journey, Paul founded the church in Corinth and served there for a year and a half, and he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians during his ministry in Ephesus. 
Paul hears of various issues in the Corinthian church, and he writes this letter with the purpose of correcting these issues with the truth and helping them to stand upright in their faith. While pointing out one of the many issues of the church, Paul asks the congregation of the church in Corinth, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? What do you think that issue was? It was sexual immorality. In verse 18, just before this question, Paul says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Corinth was an economically rich city at the center of Greek marine trade and transport, where merchants from all different countries made port. Also, the city had many different religions flow into it and was very promiscuous. The degree of such was so severe that at that time, to act like a Corinthian meant to practice prostitution or to be very sexually immoral. The city was riddled with idolatry and sexual corruption, and such issues were also present in the Corinthian church. Paul firmly says to flee immorality. Like Joseph did, we must avoid and run away from situations of immorality and sexual temptation. Potiphar's wife held onto his clothes and said, Lie with me, but Joseph immediately fled from the spot. Immorality is not an issue that we should hold onto and contemplate over, but something to be avoided. After Paul tells the congregation of the Corinthian church to flee immorality, he asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? It means the Holy Spirit is within those who believe in Jesus. It is not the church building that is the temple, but it is the body of believers where God resides that is the temple. Paul most likely already taught this when he founded and practiced his ministry at the Corinthian church. Paul asks the congregation of the Corinthian church if they do not know that their body is a temple, not because he is curious if they really do not know. He is asking how they could act immorally when they should know better. The question is full of rebuking and pity. Paul does not end with such a reprimand and says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We have been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus. Hearing this, the people of Paul's era would have naturally associated this with the slave market as a slave was bought by the owner after paying a price at the market. Jesus Christ was the one who paid the price of blood to change us from a servant of sin to a servant of righteousness, to move us from death to life. Therefore, we are not our own, but of Jesus who bought us with the price of his own blood. Therefore, we are told to glorify God in our body. Here, the word body in Greek is soma, in which the mind and soul is included, not just the physical body, and to mean the whole of the person. God, the creator of our body, our entirety, paid the price with his son's blood to buy us, the servants of sin. Therefore, we belong to God, 
and it is most appropriate to glorify God through our lives. I wonder what the response was from the Corinthian church after hearing this from Apostle Paul's letter. I wonder if they avoided sexual temptations and immorality and lived a life of glorifying God in their bodies or if they continued acting like a Corinthian. We must understand immorality according to the Bible and not by the standards of the world. Jesus said everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery, which is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Also to Israel that practiced idolatry, God said they committed adultery against him. The question that Paul asked in his letter to the congregation at the Corinthian church applies to us as well. If we live our lives thinking our body as our own, not avoiding sexual immorality, and committing spiritual adultery, the Lord will ask of us, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's it for today's Questions from the Bible program, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, and God bless you.
We know that Jesus was born in a stall. So how do we know that Jesus was born in a stall? Is there a record in the Bible that he was born in a stall? Actually, the Bible did not directly use that expression. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We think Jesus was born in a stall based upon the fact that he was laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Of course, this interpretation is not wrong, but the Hebrew word for the manger in Luke chapter 2 is huatne, and this word is translated as stall in Luke chapter 13 verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? Therefore, the word huatne not only means a manger, but also a place for a cow or donkey to eat their fodder. From time to time, stereotypes hinder us from understanding the Bible, or it becomes the object of misunderstanding. In Western and Korean cultures, an image of a stall is a barn for animals, a barn made of wood with a straw roof on top, the image we see in many Christmas cards. However, the Israelites used cave for a stall. According to the biblical scholars, the body of the early church members knew that Jesus was born in a cave. If we read Luke knowing the culture of that time, it would be natural to understand their reason. Although, it is rather strange for us to imagine a cave being used as a stall, there is something that we need to remember. A cave at that time was used as a stall and also as a tomb. We know this well. We know that Jesus raised Lazarus back to life from a cave and that Jesus was laid in a cave after his death and that a large stone closed the entrance of the cave. I began to understand why the angels told the shepherds that the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger is a sign. When we put in the original Hebrew words, the angels' words can be expressed as this. You will see a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a cave. This will be the sign of the Messiah. Can you imagine? Jesus, who came to this earth in order to die for us, already was in the form of his death the day he was born. When Jesus was born, he was wrapped in clothes, laid in a cave, which foreshadowed his death of being wrapped in clothes and laid in a cave. Who would put a newborn baby in a situation that would remind people of a funeral? That is why this can be the sign, the sign of being in a situation that nobody is willing to be in. 
As we read the book of Luke, we can think of baby Jesus who came to this world with a purpose. His purpose was to die for his people. He clearly showed us his purpose from the day he first came to earth. Jesus, who started his ministry of redeeming man from the very first day. It is a great joy for us, and at the same time, we become solemn by his great love. As I mentioned earlier, the world can rejoice and can be excited by the holidays. However, we Christians should spend this time of the year with joy, dignity, and holiness because of Jesus. I hope that in this season, we can remember baby Jesus who came to redeem us in the same form he left so that we can share the message of his grace and love to others. Let's praise him, remembering the true meaning of Christmas during the week. Thank you for joining us, and I will see you again next week. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you Look